Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. Good to have you here. Uh, this is episode 268 of the podcast, and let's talk about some stuff. So I want to talk uh, today about wokeness and the classical Christian school movement. Wokeness and the classical Christian school movement. Now, the classical Christian school movement is now very, very large, and it has many representatives. It has many different outcroppings. There's uh, the homeschool representation of classical conversations. There's Association of Classical Christian Schools, ACCS, which is the largest uh, sort of the mothership of the classical Christian school movement. Then there's the Society for Classical Learning, SCL. There are different publishers of classical school materials. There's Canon Press. There's Roman Rhodes. There's uh, classical academic press. There's uh, you know a lot of a lot of suppliers are supplying the needs of the classical Christian school movement. And when you look at the landscape, the political, cultural, social landscape today, and you look at how much disarray that's in, and then you look at how big the classical Christian school movement is, there there are going to be basically everywhere you go, there's going to be a range of approaches to how to respond to what's going on in the culture around us. There will be classical Christian educators who are more wary of and hostile to the things that are going on in our culture, and there are there will be classical Christian educators who are not really that alarmed by what's going on in the culture. Another way of saying this is that there are people in the classical Christian school movement who are hostile to the slightest trace of wokeness, and there are people who are not hostile to the slightest trace of wokeness. So, for example, there are people who think that that misogyny, you know, they'll, they'll use, uh, within the classical Christian school movement, they will use as terms of disapproval words like patriarchy or misogyny or white supremacy, uh, and so on. They, in other words, what our culture has taught us to treat as, oh, oh these are the cardinal sins that you must not commit. You, <laughs> you must not be a racist, or, and you must not ever be thought to be a racist. That, there, there will be classical Christian educators who don't care about all that and who, who see it as a man, uh, manipulation ploy. And then there are will be classical Christian educators who are more obedient to that. They they don't want to be seen as a racist, for example. Now, I, and I'll just insert something here. I don't like using the term racist anymore. There were many years ago I I just used the common parlance, but I've become convinced that there's only one race, the human race, and what people call racism would simply be instances of uh, ethnic vainglory or ethnic malice. But using the common term racism, it's thrown about a lot today, I believe that a classical Christian educator must not be a racist in God's eyes. 
But if he's not accused of racism by others in our culture, I would argue he's not doing his job. Consider what classical Christian education is. All right, we are uh, recovering and celebrating and instructing our children in the heritage of the West, the heritage of the West. Now, we're not instructing our children in the heritage of the West because we went around and found a bunch of dead white guys, and we want to teach our children about these people because they're obviously dead and obviously white and, uh, and therefore obviously great. Rather, we believe that the Christian gospel is potent for the transformation of cultures. And in the providence of God, the Christian gospel traveled primarily north and northwest from Palestine, where it started. Now, it also, in the early years, there were early Christians who made it as far out as uh, India and China. And, there, and so there have been enclaves and patches of Christian presence in other places also, and also in those places going back a long time, in India, back to the time of uh, the Apostle Thomas, for example. But the place where the Christian gospel really took root in a culture-transforming way was to the north and to the west, what we call the west, what we call western civilization, what we call western culture. Now, every believer, every conservative Christian who knows his onions, who knows what's going on, does not identify western culture or western civilization with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not Western culture, and Western culture is not the kingdom of God. That's granted, and not only granted, but granted cheerfully right at the outset. However, if you were wanting to write a history of the kingdom of God, post-apostles, most of the people you write about in the first 1,000 years will be in Europe. If you wanted to write a history of the kingdom of God for the first 1,800 years, most of them are going to be in Europe because that's where the, most of the activity happened. So I think it is fair to say that while the kingdom of God and Western culture are not synonymous, they're not referring to the same thing, the history of either one of them is incomprehensible without reference to the other one. So you can't talk about the history of the kingdom of God without talking about Charlemagne. You can't do it without talking about uh, Pope Gregory the, the Great. And neither can you talk about Western culture without talking about people like that. So uh, the history of Western civilization and the history of the kingdom of God for the first 1,800 years is largely intertwined. And that means as a result of the great missionary movement that began in the 1800s and took the gospel all around the world, the gospel is now planted in China and South America and Africa and so on. Let's say we go fast forward another couple thousand years, and there's a long and rich heritage of Chinese conservative evangelical believing Chinese Christianity. And someone in a Chinese seminary 2,000 years from now takes a course in church history. The first 2,000 years of that church history will not be in China. There'll be touches here and there in China. But basically, the way God's gospel got uh, established in this world is largely Western. Now, there's no, there's no getting away from it because that's how history sort of happened, right? We can't redo history to suit ourselves and to suit our own biases and prejudices. Now, what the classical Christian school movement has done is we 
we said we wanted to be done with newfangled educational projects and ideas that came out of teachers' colleges. We wanted to be done with secularism. And so we returned to the study of these great books, this classical Christian heritage, some of which is pagan, much of which is Christian. Now, in our woke environment, there will be people who say this is ethnocentric, this is Eurocentric, this is, this is evil, this is vile. And I would say that the true blue classical Christian educators are just going to backhand this. They're, they're going to say, oh, we don't care. We have, this is our project. This is what we're doing. And there, but there will be some classical Christian educators who are, because of various things going on in their lives, are more susceptible or more vulnerable to that kind of accusation. They'd rather, they'd rather die than uh, to be accused of being a racist. And, and if they just stay faithful to the classical Christian mission, they are going to be accused of racism. So if you're involved in a classical Christian school, look for any indicators or signs of wokeism. It's not, our movement is not automatically immune. There are, and as I, from where I sit, there are clear signs of it everywhere. And we just have to stay true to the mission, stay on point. So, as we continue on with episode 268 of the podcast, we come to, uh, well, you know, despite all obstacles, we continue to study sin. The name of this field of study is hamartiology, and today we're going to be looking at epibule, epibule, which means to lie in wait for, to ambush, in other words. And now, now this is one of those words which in warfare could refer to a righteous ambush of the unrighteous, as was done by Joshua at the Second Battle of Ai, for example. But in the New Testament, it always refers to a murderous ambush, epibule, always refers to a murderous bad guy ambush. We encounter it right after, right after Paul left Ephesus after the rioting. So in Acts 20, verse 3, and there abode three months, in, and it was in Greece, he abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. So the Jews laid an ambush for him. They laid wait for him as he was about to sail for Syria. And while talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, Paul refers to this kind of thing as one of the things, one of the recurring things that he had to endure. Acts 20, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So the Jews had repeatedly tried to ambush Paul in order to kill him. Uh, the Roman captain who sent Paul to Governor Felix used the same word. This is in Acts 23, verse uh, 30. And when it was told me how that the Jews had laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. Now, this is uh, the, the Roman captain is shading the truth here. Remember, he went down and, and fetched Paul out of a riot and was about to flog him to find out what was going on. And then he found out that Paul was a Roman citizen. And he, uh, well, he's shading the truth, let's just say. This sort of thing had started to happen to Paul right at the beginning of his Christian life. It started at Damascus in Acts 9, 24. But their laying wait was known of Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. And that was the episode where Paul was lowered out of the city of Damascus in a basket. God don't never 
All right, so uh, continuing on with episode 268 of the podcast, my book review uh, today is uh, a book called Life Together uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, I've been familiar with Bonhoeffer for many, many, many years, but this is one of those uh, writers that I was, was acquainted with and would sometimes quote because of quotes I'd picked up floating here and there, but it had never re- I'd never read any of his books. And so I just recently went through Life Together by Bonhoeffer, and it was quite strikingly good. If you want a theologically disciplined devotional book, this is the book for you. I only had one notable uh, disagreement with him. This book is about Christians living together in community, whether it's um, in a religious uh, community like a a monastery or in a a group of Christians living together, a tight-knit Christian community. He argues uh, pretty forcefully, pretty strongly, uh, in favor of all the music being singing in unison as opposed to harmony. I think he thinks that singing harmony is a, is a way of um, trying to draw attention to yourself instead of trying to identify with your people. So he, so he argues strongly against harmony in uh, congregational worship. But other than that, uh, this book is quite good. It's really meaty. And he talks about the life of Christians together and how the individual alone with God is a necessary ingredient for life together with God. So you, you have to have true individuals to make up true community. And, and without true community, you can't have true individuals. Uh, he talks about uh, using the Psalms correctly. He talks about confession, uh, dealing with sin correctly. There's just a lot of really shrewd pastoral wisdom in this book. It's very, very, very good. So there you go. My book review, my book recommendation is Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I suspect that if you're the same position that I was in uh, and you haven't really read Bonhoeffer, I think this is probably a a good book to um, start with. (laughs) 